Diedrich Bonhoeffer once said, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. That's why we strongly believe in community as one of our core values. We desire more than just being in proximity with one another. As we move closer together, we can build a strong community that encourages and prays for one another. In fact, the word itself is our cue. Calm means with. And when combined with unity, we come to understand what it means to be the body of Christ. Only as a community can we live out Hebrews 10.24, which says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Community. It's how we follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. All right, Beller family, you guys doing good? All right, those joining us also in the room are those streaming online. And we are in an exciting season right now. And I got to say, you know, I've been saying this the last couple months. And the response, you know, right when I first started saying it, has actually kind of dwindled down to uh, how we've been responding as of late. I'll, I'll say it this way. I, I, I shared two months ago that we're coming up on our 60-year anniversary as a church. My point exactly. Because two months ago, it was like people went ruckus in here. I mean, they got excited. But what, what is it? Yeah, we're tired. You got an extra hour of sleep, you know, with the daylight savings. But if you, if you haven't been around, I've been sharing that next year's our 60-year anniversary. And I know when things... There we go. There we go. Yes. That's exciting, you know, in a city and in a nation where... And in a world where things just like, just like that, you know, it's like vapor. Ideas and things and, and corporations and communities, you know, just come and go. But the fact that we as a church have been following Jesus for almost 60 years, I know that's become familiar language in the last two months, but let's not forget how significant that is. The faithful men and women who have enabled not only on this campus, but in this city and around the nation, around the world, for amazing things to happen. And so as we gather in this season, on the cusp of our 60-year anniversary, it's an amazing opportunity for us, not only to give thanks and remember for all that God has done, but also for us to say, okay, God, where are you leading now? And how can we as a church, not just me as a pastor, or just our staff, or just the members, or people who have been here for over a year, in fact, Really, this is a new season in which every single person who calls Beller their church home, whether today's your first day, you're not too late, or you've been around since year one, every single one of us has an opportunity to lean into this new season as we live out this mission of following Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. It's about following Jesus. It's about setting our compass on Him. He's the one who is the true senior pastor of this church. He's the one who is the, the core of this community, of which we'll talk about today. But it's not just on Sundays. It's every day. It's not just on this campus. It's everywhere. And it's not just with Christians. It's with everyone. And so over these last few weeks, we've been unpacking what that means. What would that look like for this to really be a way of life? How can we as individuals and as a community, how can we begin to embody certain values or practices that really help us live out that truth of following Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone. Well, in the first week, I talked about hospitality, and then we talked about courage, and last week, we talked about health, and this week, we're going to talk about community. And if you've missed any of those messages, you can go online, you can go to iTunes, you can download those videos or those 
audio recordings and you can get caught up, but as we gather today, as we consider community, on one hand, there is no value that needs to be embodied more, I believe, in Los Angeles than this value. We live in a, live in a frantic society. More and more people feel isolated. As the nation has changed, we experience so infrequently true moments of human connection that we need more than ever community. But very quickly, we've got to say what community isn't when we talk about Christ-centered community. Well, I know this helps me think about community, and it's, it's candy. How many of you last night perhaps had a little more candy than you should have? Uh, it was Halloween last night, and the rest of you must have a high tolerance for candy, I guess. So, um, well, you know, often we, we mistakenly think community is a bag of individually wrapped candy. And think about all the kids walking through your neighborhoods, or perhaps even you with that bag of individually wrapped candy. And a lot of times we mistakenly think that if you just get people together, you get them close, you get them in proximity, ah, oh, that's community. And mistakenly, we can gather on a Sunday and just because we're around one another, just because maybe we sit close enough that we actually kind of feel the warmth or actually the physical touch of somebody next to us, we might mistakenly think that we're experiencing community. That's not a congregation. That's an aggregation, an aggregate amount of individuals brought together just because they're next to one another is not community. And yet so often we mistake that this gathering place is the fullness of what Christ-centered community is all about, but it's so much more, so much more. But even then, maybe some of you are like how I've been my whole life, maybe at the end of the, the night after, you know, collecting your candy. You take out all the candy and you dump it. Now my three-and-a-half-year-old, he learned this from me, he dumps it all out. Maybe you, like me, would dump it all out, and you would, perhaps, organized, you know, the accountants in our midst. You'd kind of, you know, you'd, 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 you'd put them into like-minded groups. Oh, the Reese's Pieces over here, the Butterfingers over here, the Twizzlers I would just eat. I wouldn't even count, I would just eat them because I love Twizzlers. And what we do often at the end of a, a, a night of Halloween, and we especially do this when we gather together as groups of people, we lump things that look alike. We lump things that sound alike. We, we lump things together that, that believe the same thing, that vote the same, that have the same style of music. And we call that community. In fact, that's what the world calls community. In fact, you can go throughout all this city and you can find pockets of community everywhere. People who gather together around a common love or a common value, and I'm one of those people that, you know me, if for some of you that do, that, that I like a lot of variety in my life. So on one hand, I love to snowboard. I love to do, um, I love succulents. <laughs> How can somebody who loves snowboarding also love succulents? Odd, right? Roasting coffee. And yet, I geek out over eschatology. What? The variety of things, and, and, and as I've gone throughout my life, I've actually been around people who gather around these things. And so within the snowboarding community, it's like lumping together a whole bunch of people who are like, you know, Snickers. 
And they all like the same thing, you know, they, talk, they use the same language, there's, there's norms and there's values and there's customs and there's kind of a clear, tight boundary around that group of people. But if you go and you hang out with the succulent club, I've been, <laughs> truly, I'm not joking, I actually have been, there's this place, I'll, ask me later. But anyway, they get together and it's just like, it's just like snowboarders who actually get together and they talk about all the different things and there's, there's thrillers and there's fillers and there's spillers, all the things that I've learned about the different types of succulents and they geek out over it. It's, it's amazing, right? My cool factor has just dropped incredibly <laughs> in front of many of you. But if you go throughout the city, and some of us, we, of course, we, we experience in so many different ways pockets of community. I remember the first time I went to a welding club, true story. I'm odd, aren't I? So I went to a welding club. It was a gift that my sister gave my mom. And so we went to this welding club. And everywhere you go, whether it's the type of music you listen to, the type of sport you're into, think about all the sports that are going to be happening today, all the different jerseys that are going to be worn, all the different fight songs and the chants and the customs and the norms and the face, but all that that's going on. We experience community all the time, but it's actually what I would call just a cultural fake community in comparison to a Christ-centered community that actually is the true cure for our loneliness, the true cure for disconnection, the true cure for what our hearts were made for. And sadly, often we settle for just being lumped together with people that are just like us, and we think that that's going to solve the deep longing that we have in our hearts. Well, I've got good news today because we're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture that will actually give us not only a cure for loneliness, a sense of our deep longing, but will actually give us a very clear perspective on what the church should not be. You see, Martin Luther King Jr. and then Billy Graham quoted him as saying this, that the most segregated hour throughout the week in America is Sunday morning. And that was such an accurate picture because so easily we can fall into the world's view of lumping ourselves together, getting people who are like-minded around us, and all we're doing is we're just trying to look for other Reese's Pieces just like us. And if somebody isn't a Reese's Pieces, oh, you're a snicker, you don't belong here. And then we are no different than the rest of the world. We're going to have hope not only for how we can live and how we can love, but how we can absolutely be transformed as we embody this ever-important value of community. So if you have those Bibles, why don't you open them up? There's a red book right in front of you. If you're in the front rows, there's a little cubby right behind your leg if you've never been here. It's that red book. And as we go to Hebrews chapter 10, if you're online, you can join us. We're on the New Revised Standard Version. It's on page 976 in your pew Bible. I'm going to read a short section here. You notice that as I've been going through this series, through the book of Hebrews, we find ourselves at Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. I'm going to read this, and we're going to begin to unpack what might Christ-centered community look like here at Bel Air. Let me read this, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This, my friends, concludes the reading of God's Word. All right, I want to I frame it this way. A few of you take notes, and if you do, I want to frame the thoughts into these three kind of movements. The first, I want to begin with talking about how we absolutely, naturally fall short of Christ-centered community. Second, I want to talk about how Christ perfectly embodies this type of community that we're talking about. And third, we're going to take a look at what and how we can begin to grow to embody, not only as individuals, but also as a community, as a church, as a family, this essential value of community. So first, let's take a look at how we absolutely fall short naturally. Again, this is so easy. As humans, there's something about how we are hardwired. We look for people like us. There's this phrase among People my age, PLU, you familiar with this? People like us. Have you heard this phrase at all? PLU, oh, there's a PLU, there's a PLU. And we get into this kind of like habit of looking for people who are like us, and we immediately think that we're going to have this connection with them. And so even as the church, we fall into this habit because it's how we as human beings are born into this broken world. And so though we might say, oh, no, 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 we don't do that here at Bel Air, we're not like that. We're, 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 we're a Christ-centered community. Oh, no, we're not in practice all the time perfectly. Yes, we might be a collection of different individually wrapped uh, candies, right? But often I see us beginning to, even as we gather together, though we're in this space, and of course there's the nine and the nine and one and the 11 and the six, we've begun to, whether unknowingly or actually knowingly, whether we give words to it or we keep it in our heart, we begin to, within the Bel Air family, we begin to kind of put the, the Reese's pieces over here. Oh, those 9 a.m.ers. Oh, that's the 901 crowd. Ooh, it's open word. It's the foundry. And what was good intention and well-meaning, and absolutely is there such a diversity and such a variety that we have to provide different environments and different spaces and different opportunities for us to grow and to be sharpened, it's very easy for us to naturally fall back into this broken perspective of what community is and begin to make assumptions about different groups of people. I've heard it said about the 11 o'clock, that's the service you go to meet people. I mean, to meet someone. I mean, to get a date by the end of the night. I've also heard, you know, the, the, the 6 p.m., uh, you know, they're so busy, they don't really care about God, and, you know, by the end of the day, they're just kind of like, well, I guess I'll fit God in. Or the 901, I've heard about the 901, oh, you know, they don't really care about the reverence of God, and, you know, the, I want to I bring my coffee mug, and I want to have my, 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 my muffin. As if we can begin, you, even as you hear those, you're like, oh, no, no, that's not me, that's not me. But some of you have said it. And we so quickly focus in on these categories, even within our group, and we fall back into the same patterns that the world does, and we try to find like-minded people just like us. And so I'll get emails that say, hey, can there be a, can there be a trail running group for people that love hip-hop on Saturday mornings? Like, really? And I know that's, that's pushing the envelope a little bit, but sometimes we think that the solution 
to loneliness. And we think that the solution to community, and we think that the solution to connection is simply to create a new group of people just like us. And that actually perpetuates this wrong view of what Christ is showing us. The reality is, is that the Christian community, the Christian church, that Bel Air should actually be the place that no matter where you come from, no matter how you vote, no matter where you live, no matter what you make, no matter what your status is, no matter what your affiliations, no matter what the world says about you or what you think about yourself, that the Christian church, that Bel Air should be a place that is absolutely transformed because of something vastly different than any other community provides. And the solution isn't even within us as a group segregating ourselves into like-mindedness. Well, there's that, that group over there and that group over there and that group over there as if we're just a group of people just lumped together. We just happen to be around each other. But no, that actually we would begin to experience completely different, something dramatically impactful. And one of the pictures that helps me so much isn't just a bag of candy that we can then take out and put into different categories. But rather, and forgive me for this, this imagery, but it's a cluster of grapes. And when you think about a cluster of grapes that all have from the same source watering and nourishment and life, that they're interconnected, that life flows into some grapes and it goes out among all the different branches, it's connected to one vine. But as it spreads out and it goes, it actually flows in and through itself to the other grapes and the other branches. There's this organic collection of people that is so vastly different than what the rest of the world offers. In fact, often what the world does, especially with those groups, and sometimes we do it in church, is we focus so much on what are the boundaries that define who we are. And we focus on the edges and we focus on, okay, you're either in or you're out. There was a great illustration that I heard a couple months ago. I was with Buck Ray. We were down in San Diego. We were at a fellowship conference. And one of the pastors shared this, this truth that in Australia, they were having a huge problem. In the vast lands, in the vast areas, they would have livestock and they would have sheep. And it was so hard for them to keep all of their livestock and all their possessions safe. And so what they would do is they would spend hours and hours and days and days and weeks and weeks and years building fences and repairing fences to keep them in. They would keep their livestock in and they would keep those that are dangerous, whether it was people or it was wolves or whether some animals, they would keep them out. And so all the focus was spent on the boundaries. And the problem was that over time, they, they couldn't keep up with all the boundaries. And they would begin to, to break, they would begin to become weathered. People would force their way in. And so it was absolutely impossible to cover all the land and to be intentional about protecting their flock. And so finally, somebody had a, a really great idea. They said, you know, rather than focus on the boundaries, Let's focus on what should be at the center. And one of the ranchers had this great idea to dig a well. And when they dug that well, and out came water, and out came life, all their livestock and all their herds and all their sheep gathered in that one central space. And they begin to not worry about all the fences, even though they began to be dilapidated. Because they were able to focus their energy, what really mattered, what was at the center? And so though even people would come in to try to steal, and though wolves would try to come in, different animals would try to come, they would actually be close enough to the center of it all where it really mattered 
to be able to protect from the wolves that were breaking in and the thieves coming in. And how easy is it for us to begin to focus on all of the energy of this is what makes you in and this is what makes you out. To be a Christian at Bellarmine means you have to vote this way. No, 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 that's, that's focusing on the fences, but yet we do that all the time. But rather, what would it look like for us to see Jesus who says that he is the wellspring of life, that living water literally flows through him. And when Jesus says, you can go and you can get water from everywhere, but unless you come to me, you'll always go thirsty. What would it look like if we were so focused on Jesus Christ, as is revealed in Scripture, and that individually and collectively as a group that we found our life and our, and our love and our identity in Him, what would it look like for us to be so focused on that that a deeper, richer community springs forth? Well, Jesus, as I said earlier, absolutely perfectly embodies it. And you might say, well, okay, yes, he's Jesus. He's the Son of God. But, but consider this. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We talk about there being one God. Yes, there is one God, but God exists as three persons. For all of eternity, there has been an eternal community of oneness, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And God the Son literally stepped out of that community physically, out of the comforts of heaven, the joys of heaven, to come to us and to open up an invitation to all of humanity to be part of that community. And who did he invite? Because every single person that followed Jesus in the New Testament Scripture, Jesus went after and said, come follow me. He didn't do sign-ups and say, you've got to prove yourself. He didn't, you know, say, okay, if you do this and do that, then you can make my team. He literally went out and he began to choose people. He says, come and follow after me. And though many people were invited, there was, there was really 12. That amidst everything, we're really known as the first 12 disciples, the apostles. And it's so easy to think of them as, man, they were, they were perfect. They had it all together. I mean, talk about a small group. Talk about an amazing group of people, but we so easily overlook, as I refer to them, as the dirty dozen, by the way, it's so easy to overlook how diverse they were, how different they were, how for all intents and purposes they should not have been in a small group. Listen to this. So Matthew was a tax collector. He was so despised, he wasn't even allowed to enter into the temple. Just think about that for a moment. Jesus invites Matthew, who isn't even allowed into church, into the temple. And he says, I want you as part of my community. And then he invites Simon, the zealot. Do you know that the zealots were like a terrorist group? Do you know that? They existed as this political group, and they would literally try to assassinate government officials. So you put a tax collector and a terrorist in a small group, either you'd think the small group leader is crazy, or you might say, whoa, there's hope there. Because those are two very, very different. I mean, how did Matthew sleep at night? One eye open? You thought your small group was tough. I mean, think about this. Judas Iscariot sold out for 30 shekels of silver. He betrayed our Savior. The other Judas, did you know that there was another Judas? He had a nickname. The nickname translated in the Greek was Mama's Boy. 
James the last, as he was known, lived up to his name. He actually, there is not one recorded word or action in Scripture that he did. Yeah, he was one of the 12. He got completely overlooked. Wasn't even recorded in Scripture, yet he was one of the 12. John was so volatile, he wanted to call fire down from heaven to kill people. You know that story? It's a true story. James, the brother of John, stirred up so much trouble that he was the first to be killed. Philip focused on the small things and overlooked the Savior right in front of him. Thomas was more of a pessimist than a doubter. Nathaniel was a bigot. Andrew never came out from his brother Peter's shadow. But what about Peter? You know, we talk about Peter a lot. St. Peter, right? Well, Peter, his name is mentioned in the Gospels more than any other name except for Jesus. So you think, oh, this guy has it all together. Okay, this is the rock. This is Simon Peter. Listen to this. No one speaks as often as Peter, and no one is spoken to by the Lord as often as Peter. No disciple is so frequently rebuked by Jesus as Peter. No disciple rebukes Jesus except Peter. No one else confessed Christ more boldly or acknowledged him, his lordship, more explicitly, yet no other disciple verbally denied Christ as forcefully and publicly as Peter did. No one is praised and blessed by Jesus more than anyone other than Peter, and yet Peter was the only one that Jesus says, man, you're Satan. Get behind me. And you think about this diverse group of tax collectors and terrorists, and Jesus said this about them. In a prayer in John 17, he literally prays to God. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So there's this absolutely dramatic picture of Christ-centered community of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, opening up an invitation to these dirty dozen of Jesus saying, these are the ones that I've chosen. This is my community. This is the ones that I want all of humanity through this group. As the mission and kingdom of God is spread out to the ends of the earth, this is who I'm starting with. And the amazing thing is, is though they were absolutely different, though they absolutely had a different perspective on life. One was a terrorist, one was a tax collector. Some were bigots, some were saying things about Jesus behind his back. Crazy, right? At the end of the day, and it wasn't the first day, it wasn't the first week, it wasn't even after the first year, but they got to a place where they recognized and they acknowledged Jesus as the king of their life, the Lord of their life. He was the one who took precedence over their agenda. He was the one who took priority over their perspective. In a sense, they were saying, okay, Christ, you are over me. And that is the absolute key to community. Now, I'm not a fan of acronyms. Christians do it all the time. When I first became a Christian, I started attending Bel Air. The college group here at this church in the 90s was an acronym. The, the word was CHARGE. And it literally stood for college hour, a radical God experience. And so Christians have kind of like gone over the top with, you know, with, with, that, with acronyms. And so I'm not a huge fan of perpetuating that Christian, Christianese, you know, it's like the peace acronym and the grace acronym, the, you know, my name is like an acronym. Somebody emailed me one time, true story, about three years ago. Okay, Christians are crazy, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add another one. I'm sorry. But the true key 
to community, Christ-centered community, the community that we need, the community that we long for, simply is this, that it's Christ over me makes unity. You see, there's two M's in community. Christ over me makes unity. But the problem is so many of us resort to the me over Christ where we read our agenda and our preferences over what Jesus reveals to us in Scripture. And what that does is it kills unity. Rather than calm unity, it's mock unity. Me over Christ absolutely kills unity, but Christ over me. When we gather, no matter how we vote, no matter what music we listen to, no matter where we live, no matter what we think Christians should look like or talk like or sound like, that if Christ is over me and Christ is over us, if Jesus is truly the head of this church who is the true giver, the true source, the vine of which we are the branches, then we will find what the first and early church experienced. That no matter how diverse we are, no matter what we bring to the table, no matter what we have been told in society, that if Jesus is truly the Lord of our life, not our agenda is trying to make one another like ourselves, but if Christ is over us, Christ over me, that makes unity. So what are some tangible steps? How can we begin to grow? So I want to give you four quick, very practical ways, quick, easy things. Some of you are taking notes and open up those Bibles, but you'll notice in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, four quick things I want to point out. Some tangible things that we can do to embody community. Verse 24, and let us consider. The first one, consider. So often we go throughout life, and especially when we gather as a church, and we're thinking, what can I get out of this? What can I, what can I do? What can, how can I grow? And we're so focused on ourselves. But that word consider is absolutely transformative. If you were to show up on Sundays to your small group and service opportunities and actually consider the people around you, if you would show up to your small group, if you would show up in gatherings and actually consider, gosh, I wonder what I can do to make their day better. If you would actually consider, I wonder how I can pray for them this week. If you would show up and actually consider, how can I make that person feel more at ease? Imagine how much this room, imagine how much this church would be absolutely transformed if we were walking around considering others. We would begin to notice the person that's standing by themselves we would begin to notice that we naturally, especially at this church, when we talk to people that are just like us, we stand in kind of like this closed circle. And it's so hard for people to break. And if we were actually considered, perhaps, maybe, that when we would talk to one another, we would always leave that, that circle open just a little bit. And that we as a group would say, hey, hey, you, come, come talk to us. I've never seen you before. I've never met you before. But we'll never do that if we don't first consider those around us. But it's more than that. Take a look at this. Verse 24, it says, and let us consider how to provoke. Some translations say spur. Now, if you knew the Greek word, you would not like this word. It's an irritating word. Picture somebody on a horse with cowboy boots and a ding spur. If you're a horse and you get spurred in the side, you don't like that. I wouldn't like that. 
But the actual imagery and the actual picture of this Christ-centered community is people that love you enough, that know you enough, that would be able to actually speak truth into your life enough that it would actually, it would irritate you. That it would be sharp at first. Not because it was done in an unkind way or a hateful way or a judgmental way, but it would be done with so much love that it would actually speak to an area of your life that you actually need to grow in. And the reality is, is that there's no other community that should do that, like Christian community. Because when we gather as an individual group of people, as a community, and Christ is over us, and if we look at the authority of Scripture, then we'll actually show up and we'll speak to people in our lives and we'll say, you know, I've known you for about three years, I don't know what's going on in your life, and I, and I care about you, but you are being absolutely selfish right now. That's to spur one another on. To look at somebody and say, gosh, you know, I've known you for like a decade, and I, I just hear you filled with so much self-pity. What's going on in your life? How can I come alongside you? That's to spur one another on. The reason why I'm here today is because somebody my sophomore year of college spurred me, irritated me so much that they would, after two years of knowing me, they said, Drew, I love you, but according to my understanding of Scripture, you're not a Christian. Talk about a spur in my side. I was so upset. I was so angry. I thought he was being judgmental, but what he was saying to me out of love was this, Drew, that you think to be a Christian is simply your good works, your good deeds. And he reminded me something that I had for not really grasped a hold of, that it was simply through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And there's been people in my life that are able to, because they know me well enough, out of the context of a relationship can say, Drew, there's something going on here that I see that isn't lining up with, with Scripture, what, what God longs for you to live. There's some sin, there's some brokenness, there's some pride, there's some arrogance. There's some self-condemnation. Do you have people in your life that know you well enough that they can irritate you for good? I mean, you've got people in your life that irritate you for bad, right? But what would it look like to have people in your life that would actually irritate you, that would spur you on, that would be the rear view mirrors that you need to see your blind spots so that you can grow into the person that God longs for you to be? But at the same time, this is the third out of the four, is that we've got to do this. We've got to encourage one another. That literally means to come alongside, to walk in somebody else's shoes, to wrap yourself around their heart. So it's not just about speaking truth, but it's also speaking truth in love. It's saying, gosh, you're being absolutely selfish, but I love you and I'm selfish too. How can we walk through this together? It's to encourage somebody else to speak into their life and say that God longs for so much more than you. And I don't have the answers, but he does. Let's walk that journey together. It's not about giving up on one another. It's not about thinking of yourself higher than somebody else. It's about coming alongside and saying, let's grow together. Let's be on this journey together. In fact, there's 50 one another verses in Scripture to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to lift one another up, to confess your sins to one another. In as much as you can practice those one another's, you're beginning to experience what true Christian community is all about. And the final truth is this. It comes earlier, in fact. In verse 19, it says, Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, 
this is, this is the, the, the how. This is how we begin to experience those things. There used to be a time, as we see in Scripture, when only the high priest could enter the most holy place. Only the high priest could enter into the presence of God. And everybody else had to kind of live vicariously through that high priest. But what this passage says is that we have a great high priest, Jesus Christ, who has entered on our behalf. And when you consider the fact that Jesus Christ is part of that eternal community, is part of, I mean, when you think about it, truly the inner circle of inner circles. I mean, there's inner circles in this world. There's, you know, power players in your profession. There's certain athletes, and gosh, if I could be part of that inner circle, there's certain people within your profession or maybe in your neighborhood or, or even at this church that you think, oh, those are the power brokers. Those are the, that's the inner circle where Jesus tells us that the true inner circle of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit has extended an open invitation to you. And when you understand that you have an invitation from the most inner circle in the universe to be part of that community, to be one with God himself, and when you realize that Jesus went to the cross and died one of the most lonely deaths do you realize that when he went to the cross, one of, one of the things that he said from the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, Jesus took upon himself all the sin, all the brokenness, all the, the selfishness, and all the punishment of that, of all of humanity, upon himself. And he went to the cross lonely so you could experience true community. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you get a confidence because you don't have to live vicariously through me or anybody else, that you have direct access to God the Father, that you have direct access to the one that created you, that knows you, that knows your worth, that knows your value. Though people might let you down, I'm absolutely going to let you down. Other Christians will let you down. Our God will never let you down. And when you realize that you've been invited in that community, that is so solid, that is so firm a foundation, then actually you can walk around with a freedom and a confidence to then begin to consider one another's, to spur one another on, and to encourage one another. But it all begins with the receiving of that invitation that comes from our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. You have, as you walked in, hopefully, were given a weekly. It's a piece of paper. Folded down the middle. If you don't have it, I want you to take a look at the screens. I want to give you all an opportunity to not just hear me talk about this, but for you to actually commit to, for you to talk about perhaps one thing that you can do this week to put into practice Christ-centered community. I'm going to read these four. You don't have to do all these this week, but I want you to commit to trying just one of these this week to grow in this type of Christ-centered community. First, think about who you feel is your closest friend, not in your family. How did that friendship develop? Write down one or two ways you can deepen that friendship. Second, attend one of our groups or classes this week and make a point of meeting at least three new people. Third, if you have a close-knit group of friends or small group, invite at least one new person into that circle this week. Some of you might say, but I've been in my small group for 35 years. We've never had so many new. <laughs> well, this is the week. <laughs> Number four, pray that God will provide you with a group of people with whom you can begin to experience the one another's 
mentioned in Scripture. So in a moment, I'm going to have you break up into simply groups of two or three and just identify one thing that you want to put into practice this week. And I'm just going to give you two minutes before we continue on in a time of communion. Let me pray for us before we jump into that time. God, thank you. I pray that in this moment that we could have courage to look each other in the eye and to talk and to connect for just a moment. May it be a catalyst for a longing for deeper community outside of this time. In the very pockets of ministry, in small groups, in service opportunities, in all the areas, God, that Bel Air gathers and exists. May you give us courage right now to share with one another and may you spur us on in this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.